Try again. Good morning. It is a joy, as always, to be able to gather and worship with you this morning and to sing about the greatness of our God together and uh, now to be able to stop and reflect on his word a little bit. And uh, I've said it many times before, but to me, this rhythm of coming together in worship is a real joy and, uh, and something that gives us a lot of strength as, uh, as individuals and as a family uh, in the emotional season that we have been in. And uh, I mentioned during the sharing time the decision concerning the adoption, and uh, alongside that, uh, actually happening the exact same week that we were involved in a hearing concerning that, uh, my grandfather passed away. And, uh, and so uh, that was uh, quite an emotional roller coaster of a week for us. And fortunately, uh, my grandfather lived almost 90 years, a good long life. He died peacefully and well, uh, and he was a man of faith. And, uh, and so when we gathered together to celebrate his life, that was what came out over and over and over again, was just stories about his love and the character that people saw in him, and the way that that was something that God had worked in him, that he, he was a man who had his failures and his struggles, uh, but God had worked a great deal of change in his life to make him the man that he was. And so, and so as we gathered as a family, we were able to celebrate that and, and to hear about the good things God has done in his life. And for me, one of the, the joys in that was the fact that it, it opened up an opportunity for uh, deeper interaction with my siblings. This is a picture of the five of us together with my mother. Uh, and uh, uh, my family, my, my nuclear family, is something that's always been very important in my journey as somebody who went through, uh, uh, my, my mom went through a divorce when we were younger and uh, we had to navigate the trickiness of that situation. And, and uh, God always used our family as a tight-knit unit to support each other and to care for each other. Uh, and with this funeral, we had an opportunity as siblings to just spend a little bit of time together after the funeral, uh, talking and remembering and, and growing together and seeing the way that God has worked in each of our lives to be able to change us and to grow us over time. And so that was a, that was a real joy for me as well. Um, and, uh, and within this uh, joy of, of my family, one of the things that uh, I often reflect on is the woman of character that God put as our mother. Uh, in our lives, uh, that I am blessed to have a mother who is strong, uh, who is fierce, who uh, fought to protect her family through the difficult times that we went through. Uh, she, she single-handedly pretty much raised us uh, and, and did so while having to deal with questions like, how do I get off of welfare and how do I make sure that uh, I'm, I'm keeping them immersed in the faith even though, uh, even though their father walked away and things like that. Uh, and, and so I have a great deal of respect for my mother and, uh, and often reflect on the fact that uh, she is really a model of strength to me. And that's not to say that she's perfect. She certainly has her failures. She, uh, she often puts her foot in her mouth because she speaks impulsively and she sometimes tries too hard to fix things and, and so you're trying to just share something that's on your heart and she's trying to fix it right away and, and that's the kind of woman that she is. Uh, and, and yet despite that, uh, one thing that stood out the whole time and, and continued to stand out in our, in our conversations around my grandpa's passing is that my mother, too, is a, a model of what unconditional love looks like uh, and has really set a standard for what, for, for what it looks like to care for people under your, your watch. Um, and one of the things that occurs to me, and, and I've learned more and more as I've grown up, is that my mom, uh, despite all of that character, has sometimes struggled with her identity as a woman, 
largely because of the fact that she sometimes worries that she doesn't line up with the image of a godly woman that sometimes exists in, in the church and in our, in our broader culture. That, that she, she reads a number of different passages, including the one that we're looking at today, about being quiet and submissive and, and being a gentle spirit, and that, that really isn't her a lot of the time, on the surface at least, right? She is somebody who is, again, full of life, full of vigor. She, she, she's always got lots of energy. Uh, she calls herself a raging extrovert. <laughs> right is kind of a term she uses to describe herself, uh, and so and so passages like this uh, that uh, that talk about the character that a godly woman should have sometimes have been a source of difficulty for her, and and for me have been a source of great reflection. Um, and uh, so as we dive into the book of First Peter and look at chapter three one to seven, uh, I think it's important to note that this is something that touches on my experience, uh, and it's something that I think touches on most of our experiences, that either we are a woman or we have important women in our lives, and the question comes up over and over and over again, what does it mean to be a woman, as well as the parallel question of what does it mean to be a man? And, and I think it's important for us to be able to sort through by looking at Scripture and the broader Christian tradition to say, what does it mean to be a woman or a man, and, and what instructions has God given us specifically around marriage and the household so that we can make sure that we are living in a way that really reflects His will for us? Um, now, I think it's important to note that this passage follows two other passages dealing with similar topics around authority and submission, that this is a theme that Peter has come back to a number of times thus far, and Brent already spoke to one of those elements, talking about political leadership, uh, and Daryl talked about the other, talking about the slave-master relationship that existed in ancient times, uh, and over all of these passages, those two and the one today, I think the, the theme that binds them all together and the thing that I really want to draw out of this passage is, is that the biblical view of authority and submission isn't about denying anyone's strength, but rather it's a choice that we make to reflect God's character in our relationships. Let me say that again. The, the biblical view of authority and submission isn't about people being weak or, or not being strong. It's a choice we make to reflect God's character in our relationships, right? And that's really what this passage and, and many other passages in the Bible are driving at when they look at the way that authority and submission should take place in the variety of different areas of our life. So now let's take a look at the passage and we'll walk through it together to see how that plays itself out in the household. Starting in verse 1 of 1 Peter 3, I have it on the screen reading from the English Standard Version. Peter writes, Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
Okay, having read this over, I think it's important to note that to understand this passage fully and to be able to talk about what this authority relationship looks like that Peter's touching on, we need to understand a Greek word. The word oikos. <laughs> to understand the concept of oikos, which, which loosely translated is the word household, in the ancient Greek, we have to understand the, the worldview that households existed within in Jesus' time. The ancient Near East was a place that focused a lot on one particular element of the universe as kind of the, the core of their thinking. And that is the idea of order versus chaos. That, that ancient people believed that the world was a place that was always at risk of falling apart of disintegrating into chaos, and that chaos was the thing that would ultimately prove to destroy our civilizations, our, our, our personal lives, our relationship with the gods, that, that the universe was always on the edge of falling into chaos, and that the gods and our human institutions were supposed to serve the, the, the fighting of that and produce order over and against the natural chaos of the world. And this is something that was reflected in ancient institutions. We see that when it comes to religion in the ancient world, there was a real high respect for paying respect for the gods. The, the, the focus was that we kind of recognize our place in the universe as those who are underneath the gods, and so we go to temple worship on a regular basis to, to demonstrate the fact that we recognize our place and to, to, to pay diligent attention to the order of the universe. And by doing so, we might gain the favor of the gods who see the fact that we know our place and, and they will give us their favor over time. Alongside that, we see it reflected in the political institutions of the day. There was, there was a high level of respect asked for political leaders, for Caesar at the top of everything, and alongside that, for the government as a whole, as a source of order within society at large. That the idea was that you would pay reverence by being a good citizen, by being a good participant in the laws and the structures of your society. You paid your taxes properly because that was how you fought against chaos within society. And so, so there was a high level of respect for government institutions and, and a lot of emphasis placed on you play your role within the society. You don't try and overturn the way things are. Alongside that, we see it played out in the way that different individuals related to each other, especially along racial or gender lines. We see that certain people were recognized as full citizens, that they had a special status. Normally, it was attached to their, their, uh, their heritage, that they were a certain kind of person racially. And because of that, they were given high levels of respect within the broader society. And then everybody else, sometimes numbers as high as 75% of the population, were underneath those people. And they were there to be the servants, the ones who were able to make sure that those people who had the higher status were properly cared for. And, and, and so Daryl touched on the fact that this didn't always look like what we think of as slavery. It wasn't that people were denied any sort of rights whatsoever. Uh, it was just that you recognized your place. If you weren't a, a full citizen of Rome, then you were a servant. And so you, you would try hard to make sure that you looked after your duties as a servant. And sometimes you could actually make a very good uh, well-being for yourself out of that. Right? Um, but this was very important, that, that uh, in the ancient world, understanding the way that people related to each other based on their race, based on their gender, was, was part of the mindset of how you retained order within the universe and fought against chaos. So this brings us back to our yogurt container, okay? our oikos. 
This, this idea of the ancient Greek household. And, and uh, when, when you look at the historical data that we have from the time, then we recognize that the household was seen as a really important element of this order of society. In fact, the household in many ways was regarded as the base unit of everything that went on in the broader society. And, and the household was not what we think of as a household today. Uh, part of that is because people tended to live in more rural communities, and part of that was just because they lived in closer proximity to each other and, and didn't have as much transportation and technology to spread out the way that we do. Uh, and so because of that, a household normally consisted of multiple family units that were all related to one another, living in a designated area, and, and, and they kind of worked together to, to produce a life for their, their household, right? And so you probably had kind of grandparents living with their children, and you had children and their children kind of living alongside each other. And with them, you also had servants of the household who lived in proximity, and they would come and they would help serve with the household tasks. And all of that was regarded as the family, the household, right? And, and there were certain ways that people were supposed to function within that household. And in particular, there was an understanding that men in general were supposed to focus on the economic and public elements of the family life, and that women were supposed to look after the household affairs to raise the kids and to make sure that things were taken care of in an orderly manner there so that, so that they could be raised up and they could be contributing members of the household over time. And, uh, and there was a real focus on the fact that at the top of this, there was a patriarch. There, there was a, a man, normally an older man, who was recognized as the head of the household, who was responsible and accountable for making sure that the household functioned well, that everybody was disciplined well, that they were properly taken care of, that they contributed to the household, and that if they dared to rebel against this structure, they would be disciplined accordingly, right? And, and, and so again, within the broader worldview, the understanding was that this household structure needed to be preserved because it was actually where, on the ground level, people were fighting against the forces of chaos. That, that by maintaining this household structure, chaos would be held at bay and people would be able to live good, fruitful, productive lives. And I think if you look closely enough, you can recognize that, yeah, it actually makes sense that disrupting this could actually be really bad. Right? That if people suddenly were just doing whatever they wanted and stopped contributing to the well-being of the household, then a lot of the economy of producing food and producing items would fall apart, and people wouldn't be able to survive as, as a society if you didn't have that basic structure going on uh, to, to actually be productive. Right? In a very real way, undermining the oikos would cause major cultural upheaval. And so ancient cultures fought to make sure that this functioned well. And, and in there, along comes a man who, whose teaching runs the risk of disrupting this. You might know him. His name is Jesus. You see, Jesus came along and, and, and he, 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 he saw that there were certain things that needed to be disrupted about the social order. And, and this is something that comes up throughout his teaching. He, he often challenges religious institutions. He often questions the, the absolute subservience to political institutions. Uh, and alongside that, he questioned the way that people tended to see household relationships as functioning. And in particular, he gave a, gave a much greater level of respect to women than most cultures at the time did. He actually invited them to be part of his ministry. He, he, he gave credence to them when they were doing things that were important. And alongside that, he actually would invite them to sit at his feet 
and enjoy his teaching and become full participants in the community of faith. And we can see that this caused tension even among Jesus' own followers. And, and one story that illustrates this well is the story of Mary and Martha. Right? And, and, and a lot of the time, I think Martha gets a bad rap in this story because here's Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, learning about him being a good, faithful person, and Martha's getting angry at her because what are you doing? You're supposed to be helping me look after all of the household tasks right now. But I think it, it, we have to recognize, for, for Martha, this was actually a fundamental part of how human beings were supposed to relate. The men are here, they're sitting in the living room, they're focusing on public teachings and learnings and getting ready to go out into the world and to represent their faith, and the women are supposed to be looking after them by looking after the household duties, and you're actually disrupting the order of things right now, Mary. Why are you sitting out here and, and, and sitting with the men learning instead of helping me with the household task and, and doing what we're supposed to do, Right? And Jesus' response probably surprised people when he said, no, she's actually chosen the better thing. In this case, it's better for her to go against her cultural roles in order to learn and to grow in her faith and to be a contributing member of the faith community, right? And it's because of teachings like that that Jesus' earliest followers began to really reflect that in the way that they built their faith communities, that women were paid a lot of respect in the earliest teachings of the church to the point that they were recognized as the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And, and alongside that, they were given opportunities to come to join in on the worship uh, in, in situations that men normally would have only been permitted to do. And they were allowed to learn about the things that men were learning about. Um, and, and the result was that sometimes things got a little disorderly. <laughs> and And... and the disorder was scary enough that one of the things that came up within the broader culture was that Christians were actually at risk of undermining society. That was a real fear of people at the time. And again, this is not just pertaining to gender roles. This is actually pertaining also to other elements like paying taxes to Caesar or, or like participating in certain forms of worship. Christians were actually labeled with the label atheists. The first time we see the word atheist used was to refer to Christians because they didn't participate in the right kind of religious worship. And so people were actually worried that they were undermining even the religious institutions of the day in the way that they did things. And, and one of the criticisms was, look, you're teaching women to not respect their place in the society. This is going to undermine all of the things that we are about as a culture. And so we see that in the New Testament, Jesus' earliest followers have to walk a very careful line. And they teach on a number of occasions about how men and women should relate. And you can see that one of their priorities is to acknowledge the value of women and to empower them, while at the same time fighting against the disorder that that can cause and making sure they don't undermine their witness and the integrity of their faith communities. And so this is a very real concern that, that the Christian teachers had to navigate, is, is how to say we follow in Jesus' footsteps of empowering women, but not undermining things so aggressively. And I think that's a big concern of Peter's here in this passage. And so let's go back through it very carefully and see how, how this plays out specifically within Peter's context. So we see that he starts out by saying, likewise... This is following the political instructions and the, the instructions he had for, for servants and masters. He says, like them, wives, you should be subject to your husbands, right? 
So, so, so right away, when Peter starts talking about the marriage relationships, he, he, he upholds the institution of the day. He says, recognize the headship of the men in your household. Right? You should be subject to them. You should respect their authority. Right? And he notes that sometimes, some of them may not even be practicing Christians themselves, they may not obey the word, but that by upholding the institution, by, by submitting to their husbands, they actually can win over their husbands with their conduct because they will see that they were respectful and pure. Right? So this is his appeal, is, is, is act in a way that shows your respect Act in a way that shows you don't have ill motives in this, that you're not taking advantage of your faith to, to, to become rebellious and to, and to just become a force for chaos and, and undermine things because you think there's benefit for it for you. Instead, be respectful, acknowledge your husband's authority, and that might actually win them over to Christ's cause. He says, alongside this, don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening." So, so here we see that he builds on this and he looks at some of the ways that women have been behaving and, and they've been trying to use some of their, their freedom as an excuse to kind of play themselves up, to make them look like they're wealthier, fancier, that they have more freedoms than they, they used to have. Uh, they've been focusing a lot on the appearance of this matter. And, and he challenges that and says, hold on, your, your focus shouldn't be on looking good, on playing up your status within the community. Instead, your focus should actually be on having the right kind of character. That your, your character should be one that actually pleases God by showing that you, you are somebody who can respect the needs of others and respect the cultural institutions and, and, and that you will reflect the values of the people who came before you. Right? Notice that he does throw in this line here, which I think touches on what I was saying earlier about this not being a, a, a matter of weakness. He actually says that if you're Sarah's children, you're not going to fear anything that's frightening. Well, that's actually a tremendous sign of strength, Right? So he's not saying, you should be cowed, you should be afraid, you should worry about all of the things that people are telling you you should worry about. Instead, he's actually saying, you should make a bold choice to be different, to live your life in a way that's, that's actually reflective of God's character and winsome to other people. And then he's, we see that he turns his attention towards husbands. And like with the other passages where he looks at the political institutions and then especially the master-slave relationship where he gives instruction for the person in power as well, he looks at the husbands and he says, husbands, you need to live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they're heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, so here we see, again, he's, he's reinforcing the institution. He's saying there is... It's, it's good for you to embrace your authority as a husband, right? But the way you do that should be different than the way you've often seen it done in your culture. You should live with your wife in a way that's understanding, that, that actually places a priority on seeing what her needs are and honoring her. And he has this phrase, he says that you, know, you should honor her as the weaker vessel, and there's a lot of debate around what that means exactly. My interpretation is simply that he's acknowledging she's in a weak position because she's submitting and he's in authority, Right? 
And so he's saying, because she's submitting and under your authority, she's in a, in a vulnerable position, and you need to honor her and make sure that you're taking care of her in that position. Right? And, and he roots it in this understanding that women are equal before God as heirs to the grace of life. And this phrase is, again, one that really touches on a pretty disruptive idea within the Christian community. In Jesus' day, people who could inherit were men exclusively. That women didn't have an inheritance right. And yet within the early church, they began to recognize that God sees women equally. They get to inherit God's kingdom as much as anybody else. And so he says there is this subversive idea, and you need to embrace it even as you operate within your established structures. That husbands, you have to recognize your wife's value before God, that she's your equal as an heir, and, and you need to treat her accordingly. And he follows it up with a, with a bit of a threat, really, a, a major warning that it, it, your prayers may be hindered. That, that actually, if, if husbands aren't treating their wives this way, then they could actually not be heard by God, that God won't honor their requests, right? It's very, very rare that the Bible attaches this kind of clause to anything in Scripture, that God would actually stop paying attention to you because of something. So, so it shows the great importance of Peter's instructions here, that he's saying if you abuse your authority, then God will be displeased with you and will stop paying attention to your needs, Right? In many ways, it shows the fact that, that our, the way we use our authority actually mirrors the way God uses his, and God will turn that on its head if we are going to do so as well. So, so we see how this plays out, this idea of the oikos, and then the idea of kind of both preserving the cultural institution, trying to say we want order in this place, but at the same time saying that we want to recognize that something new has been added to our understanding, that women really are equals before God, and, and so we need to empower them and, and value them in a different way than the culture around us. Now, we turn away from this idea of the oikos in the ancient culture, and, and I think one of the things that stands out immediately is that our households today probably don't function along those lines. I don't know about you, I don't know many people who live in that kind of setup. The only place I can think of it is, is in some very rural communities where you get a, something a little bit like it. Even then, because of modern technology, most of the time it's more what we call a nuclear family, where you get a couple with their children who are living as a fairly isolated unit, and when they invite their extended family in, it's kind of as people outside of their home to come and be with them rather than living right alongside them. And certainly we don't have our employees most of the time living right in our household as well and contributing as such. Right? And so we recognize that a lot of the elements of the oikos just aren't present in our day-to-day -day reality today. And, and, and because of that, this image of the, the, the patriarch, the man of the household, as kind of the manager of this cultural institution really doesn't resonate very deeply. Our culture's tendency is to view marriage less like a managerial relationship and more like a partnership between two equals who have a very limited set of responsibilities on their plates, right? And so something that immediately comes up is, well, okay, so how do we take what Peter is saying and, and other New Testament authors are saying in the day and apply it in this very different cultural context? And this is a big debate. This is a debate that touches on probably a half dozen different fairly large passages, it's something that really touches on not just the, the direct instructions of Scripture, but also the overarching narrative of Scripture. 
Uh, and and I, I think you could probably go to a whole series of university lectures on this very topic before you really understood it fully. And so I don't feel like I can dive fully into that here today. Uh, and I also don't think I can really speak for our church as a whole in this regard, um, because I think even on our elders' team, there's a diversity of views about this. Right? Certainly within broader Christianity, there's, there's a diversity of views on how exactly we apply this in our current context. Broadly speaking, there's really two main views. The first is that the headship of men is actually part of God's design and needs to be reflected in our current household structures. Right? So that there is a, an inherent authority relationship where men are supposed to be leaders, women are supposed to be helpers, and, and because of that, we should, we should reflect that even in this more nuclear family style of structure. Alongside that, there's another view that, no, the, the, the idea that this is more of a partnership that individuals can kind of share leadership and that they can work together according to their individual strengths and gifts and, and handle their much more limited sense of responsibilities in, in that way, uh, that, that people say that's actually okay. The partnership model is okay. It's not undermining God's will for us, but that institution, the way that it functions today, needs to be redeemed to reflect Christ's character too. The same way that Peter was taking his cultural institution and trying to redeem it, we need to take our cultural institutions and try and redeem them. And so I think these are the two main views, and I encourage you if, you, if you are interested in this, go research it out, see which of them seems to stand the test to you, right? Uh, I, will, I will admit that Shoshana and my, uh, I and our relationship, we tend towards the second, right? That we tend to see ourselves as partners in this, that we share leadership, that when we make decisions that affect our whole household, we do it in unity and we work really hard for that, never saying that one's opinion trumps the other. And, and alongside that, uh, we, we kind of submit to each other in different domains of our household life. And a, an example I like to use of me submitting to her is that she is much, much better at our household finances than I am. Uh, I, I, I was raised by a single mother who was really good at making sure that the books balanced out at zero every single month, uh, and so that's what I carried into my adulthood. <laughs> that's really not a good way to run your household budget over a long period of time, <laughs> right? And, and so I'm happy to say, Shoshana, you go ahead. You tell me what I should do when it comes to our finances, right? So that's how we apply it in our house is that, is that we submit to each other in different areas, just like she is willing to submit to me in career decisions or things that, you know, how, how we handle uh, the spiritual routines of our household and things like that. Um, uh, so we, we tend towards the partnership model, right? But, but again, I think both of these views uh, are rooted in Scripture and are things that uh, can be good and godly when they're played out well. Um, and so I don't want to try and settle the bait here today. Um, again, I encourage you to research it out. What I want to do is pull out certain principles from Peter's writing here that I think can apply in either of those views, okay? That I think there's wisdom here that really shapes the way that we relate to one another and helps us to reflect his character in our relationships that, that we, we really need to embrace as a community and as families. So the first of these is this idea of leadership and submission being modeled after Christ and the church, uh, and then this is something that comes up in a number of different passages as well. Perhaps the, the one that captures it best is Ephesians 5, where Paul actually uses this exact image, that, that husbands are like Jesus, wives are like the church, and they should, they should live in relationship with each other in a way that reflects Christ's love for his people and the church's willing submission and respect for Christ. Right? And, and I think that this changes the way that authority works anywhere that we apply it. 
That, that if we really recognize that wherever leadership occurs, it needs to be Christ-like leadership. That it needs to be attentive to the needs of the person under the leadership. That it needs to put their needs first in a sacrificial way. That, that it needs to, to, to pay a lot of high-level uh, high respect and empowerment towards the individuals who are under leadership, the way that Christ empowers those under his leadership. That that denies us any opportunity to lord our authority over other people, right? And vice versa, if we recognize that when we are under leadership, we should submit to that leader as we do to God, trusting that they are looking out for our best interests, looking for them to actually take care of us well, and, and seeking opportunities to show our humility in everything that we do, right? That that is a good and a beautiful thing. And, and I think that this is countercultural today, regardless of how you view the theological element of how husbands and lives relate. I don't think this idea of leadership and submission is very common in our culture. I think we still lean towards people using their authority to benefit themselves. Right? That we love the philanthropist playboy who, yeah, gives away a portion of his money, but just loves to play it up and enjoy all of the luxuries of being the, the powerful, the successful person. Right? That that's our image of what it looks like to have power. And alongside that, I think we don't really like the idea of submission to authority at all. That we tend to say individuals should, should reject anything that would hinder their own free will and their own opportunity to choose what's best for them. The idea that somebody else might actually know what's best for me is really quite countercultural. <laughs> right? And so the idea that, that when we are under somebody else's leadership, including in the household, we would actually take a stance of real trust. That we would say, I trust you enough to let you decide things for me. That's, that's really countercultural, right? And so we should reflect that in our marriages and in our relationships in general. Wherever leadership occurs, it should be Christ-like leadership. Wherever submission occurs, it should be church-like submission as unto God. And that, that we actually see that that actually shows our faith in action and is part of our witness in the world. And speaking about our witness in the world, another lesson I take away from Peter's writing here is the centrality of character. That, that Peter isn't as concerned about the actions, but the character that underpins it. And we see in this passage, this is what he spends the most time on. When it comes to the instruction, practically, women, respect your husbands, right? It's just kind of a one-liner. But he really wants to get deep into what it is that's going on underneath the surface there. And what he wants to show is that having the kind of humility that God wants for us is actually incredibly winsome, right? That, That when we are not anxious to try and grab on and take over our own lives and make things happen the way that we want, that we actually are are trusting and patient and faithful in God and in the people who are leading us, right? That that is actually something that's compelling, that it's attractive, that people look at it and they say, I want that, right? That a godly character is incredibly attractive and incredibly transformative, for us and the people around us. And so my takeaway from this is that you can spend a lot of time talking about how you structure your household or kind of 
dealing with a theological debate around gender. Um, but you can do all of that and totally miss the kind of person God wants you to be. Don't do that. I have seen too many people who are caught up in the nitty-gritty theological debates who just seem to be slanderous and contentious and, 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 and they just have no character in the way they treat other people. Right? And to me, that is just totally the opposite of what Peter's going for in this. A simple, a simple way to go about this is look at the fruit of the Spirit listed in the book of Galatians and compare yourself to that. That's what God wants for you is to be that kind of person who is loving, who is gentle, who is kind, who is faithful, who is steadfast, who's, who is self-controlled, right? This is, this is the character that God wants for us. And again, I think this is very countercultural. We often focus so much in our culture on just trying to get what we want. We never, we never slow down and reflect on who am I? Who does God want me to be? How can I change in my inner life? That is God's deepest desire for all of us, and, and that, it, that it plays itself out in the household as well. And, and, and part of the reason I think this is important is because Peter does give something very practical here. And that is, if your spouse or somebody else that you're in close relationship with is not a godly person, the path that God has for winning them over is not to cajole them, not to try and beat them into doing things the way that you think they should, it's not to try to gain some sort of power or authority over them. It's to simply reflect his character and let that speak to them. And that's something I have tried to follow in my own life, and I've seen the fruit of it over time. That, that with the people I wish were following God better, learning to just let my character speak for itself, that's the thing I have seen have the greatest impact over time. And so if you're in that type of situation, know your character is the most important thing as you go through that journey. Alongside that, I do think it's really important to recognize that, that what Peter is doing here is something we still need to be able to do. Now, this is going back a step from the direct kind of instructions of the passage and, and going back to this idea of the oikos and all of that stuff I had about the cultural institutions. Right? Whether or not you think we need to take the direct headship model and apply it in our context, one way or the other, we see that what Peter and the early church writers are interested in doing is making sure that their witness is intact in the broader community. That not only does our individual character transform other people, but our character as a community is a major part of our witness within the world. And so we need to actually be paying attention to the concerns that are being expressed about the church. Now, now this, is, this is a tricky line to walk, because certainly there are a lot of false accusations that come up against Christians. There's no denying that, and, and that, that was true in Peter's day as much as our own, right? That, that, that we see that, that many slanderous things have been said about Christians throughout history, that you just need to say that's fundamentally not true. But sometimes there are criticisms that do ring true, and we need to be able to take that and be very careful about responding to it in a godly, cautious, but serious way. And when I look at the culture around us today, and I think about the comments that come up about the church, I don't actually see a lot of people saying, oh, those disorderly Christians. How dare they disrupt all of our cultural institutions? 
Christians are such an agent of chaos in our culture. (laughs) Have you ever heard that? (laughs) I haven't. Right? Uh, maybe, Maybe once in a while, but very seldom is that the primary criticism. In fact, the criticism I hear the most often, and and maybe this is partly because I work closely with university students and First Nations people, so I have kind of inherent bias. I I hear certain messages more than other people might. But I think when I even look at just the broader media portrayal of Christianity, the criticism that comes up most often is not that we disrupt order, but that we're so concerned about our order order and way of doing things, that we actually hurt people. That, that the way we insist on certain kinds of relationship between men and women, or between the church and disenfranchised people, the, the, the kind of politicians that we tend to support often lead people to become damaged. That they either get hurt personally because of comments that are made that, that attack their person, or they get hurt institutionally because there isn't the kind of justice that we need to be pursuing in our broader culture, and Christians support the old way of doing things. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not saying that all of those criticisms are right or true. In fact, just the opposite. My experience within the church is that people really do have a heart for serving those who are suffering. And we do it in a lot of little, often unseen ways where we give towards causes and we help people out in practical ways. And so I actually, I love that I'm part of a church community that is very much a a generous giving community. Nonetheless, I think if we're going to pay attention to any criticism in our culture and really reflect on what are we communicating, it's that message that sometimes we value submission and order to the extent that we actually hurt people. And I think if you look at Jesus' teaching and the teaching throughout Scripture, that's not acceptable. That he really cares about those who are suffering under injustice being lifted out of that situation. Right? And so as odd as it seems, I think sometimes the right application of what Peter is doing in this part of his book is actually to disrupt some of our cultural institutions. Right? And again, that's a complicated thing. We can go really deep into that. But the idea is that sometimes we might need to just look and say, this isn't right, and I'm going to challenge it. Because we're we're paying attention to what often is said about the church in our context and making sure we're trying to preserve our witness to the people around us who care greatly about making sure we are serving justice. Right? So if I go back to where I started, which is looking at my mom and her strength and energy... (laughs) And kind of saying, what, is, what does she take away from a passage like this? Well, what I would say is, first and foremost, if you have leadership gifts and you're given the opportunity to lead, then lead in a Christ-like way. And vice versa, when you know that somebody's better able to lead in this context or has been given authority, then really truly learn to submit to them. <laughs> right? And for my mom, probably that second part is harder. <laughs> But, but it's an important part of it, is that by submitting to other people's leadership, we actually reflect the character that God has for us and what Christ himself did in submitting to his Father. So wherever you lead, lead in a Christ-like manner. Wherever you submit, do so as to Christ. Also, let your character speak for itself. Instead of worrying about always fixing things, just be the kind of person that people look at and say, I want to be like that. There's something compelling, there's something good about that. And that can be the primary source of change, especially in situations where you're under somebody else's authority. And finally, I would say to my mom, well done 
for using your strength to fight for your children. It is not wrong to say, I want to fight to correct something that's wrong in the world. In fact, in many ways, I think that is lining up with God's character. So well done for using your strength to fight for those under your care. That, too, is part of this passage's application. Now, again, we're wrapping up kind of a broader mini-series within the book of 1 Peter here. And so I come back to the overall thesis. I think the biblical view of authority and submission isn't about denying anyone's strength. Male, female, black, white, anything in between. There's nothing about your race, nothing about your gender, uh, nothing about your sexuality that determines whether you are a strong person or not. And we don't want to echo that message that often has been there. We don't deny people's strength, but instead, the biblical invitation is that we make a choice to reflect God's character in our relationships. And part of that is how we lead and submit to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your perfect fatherly love, for the initiative you take in our life to to lead us into something better. You know better than us what is good for us, And we thank you for that and ask that you would help us to reflect that in the way we lead one another and in the way that we submit to one another. Father, make us more like you as individuals and as a community and let that bring about a transforming effect in our lives and the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.